how do you know when you're sick? For that matter, how do you know when you're better from being sick? This question on the surface seems so unbelievably easy, even obvious. You just know when you're sick. You, you don't feel good anymore. You feel diseased. And when you get better, you feel, well, I'm like you used to, right? Well, this is a fundamental question that lies at the heart of every medical treatment you'll ever seek out in your entire life. And it actually opens up an entire can of worms, a philosophical discussion that has no easy answers, even though we think on the surface that this should be the simplest thing in the world. In fact, you think probably that me even posing that question is, well, maybe a little moronic. Sickness is when you're just not good anymore. You have, you have something gone wrong in your body and you want to set that thing right. Okay, well, that's not a bad place to start. Now, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm an investigative journalist, but I also studied medical anthropology in graduate school and have been deep inside the philosophy and anthropology of medicine for the better part of two decades now. So I have a couple thoughts about medicine, about the reason why we seek out doctors in the first place that might make you think about disease in slightly different ways than you do right now. In fact, there are ways to think about disease and the process of healing that will fundamentally reorder the way that we think about the universe of our own health. I mean, we all know that right now in America, there are basically two major huge philosophies of medicine. And let's start there, right? We have scientific medicine on one side, a guy in a lab coat who tests you and finds the root cause of your illness in one specific thing that then can provide some sort of antidote to your problem. Uh, there's a hormonal problem. You have a broken bone. You have a bacterial infection. You have this one thing that we can fix because we know the reason. This is scientific empirical medicine in its most broad way. The other side is what we see on, say, the wellness industry, is that you have this vague malaise, a, a combination of multiple symptoms, and the way to bring you back into balance in this sort of wellness world is to change all of the inputs in one way or another, um, to change your environment, to change the way you think about things, the power of positive thinking. Maybe there's herbs or supplements or other things that are not scientific, but they create a general boost to your overall vitality. These two diametrically opposed medical philosophies are the ones that most of us contend with every day in America when we feel sick. Do we take a nice echinacea tea when we feel ill and hope that this gives a, a boost to your overall health? Or do we say, look, I have this very specific symptom and I want this fixed, and the root cause is, well, a thing, a thing you can touch, you can pull, you can pull out of your body, and then you return to a normal state of health. 
These are the two big concepts that I'm going to be dealing with in this conversation today. And I'm going to pose a controversial idea that perhaps both medical systems that we, that we are looking at, that we are dealing with on a daily basis in America, can help each other bring all of us to better overall health. Indeed, the way that we engage with both systems are remarkably similar. And this is especially relevant for chronic conditions. Now, we all know that uh, American scientific medicine is absolutely genius at acute conditions, right? If you have a broken bone, you're not gonna go open up your echinacea tree drawer, right? If you have a bacterial infection, if your finger is turning green, you're not gonna go to an acupuncturist to fix that, right? We know that there's a specific problem and we're gonna get that problem addressed. American doctors, Western doctors are wizards in the surgical theater. Uh, they, we have targeted medications for many sorts of conditions that are very specific and very effective. And so I am not, by and large, going to be talking about acute care in America because, well, I wouldn't say it's totally solved, but we're doing pretty well in that genre of medicine. What I'm mostly concerned with are chronic conditions, the creeping conditions, the things that you're not quite totally sure, your gut is just not feeling great, your mood is a little off, you have uh, arthritis, you have these um, conditions that slowly take over and define your life. Uh, and these are where the, the questions of how to address those problems become really, really interesting because Western medicine, well, it doesn't have acute solutions to chronic problems. Uh, and this is where we all get into this place where we, we, we have something wrong with us. And we say, well, how can we address it? And we all sort of know that going to your normal doctor doesn't always solve the problem. We also know that the wellness industry also often fails. But how do we get better in chronic conditions? All right, well, here goes. The first thing that I want to propose to you is that when you have a medical problem or a thing that's gone wrong in your body and you want to fix it, what you want more than anything else is relief from the symptoms that you are complaining about, that, that irk you. And it doesn't matter if you're going to a shaman, to a crystal healer, to Johns Hopkins uh, chief medical officers treating you. It doesn't matter what condition you have. What you want is relief from your problems. And doctors, and you know, if we, we want to talk about the medical system and the way that physicians usually think about uh, medical interventions, a patient presents the doctor with symptoms. And a symptom is your subjective experience of your condition that brings you into the doctor. Maybe you've noticed when you go to, for a physical or a, you, know, you have some appointment with a doctor, uh, the first thing that a good doctor asks is, well, what brings you in here today? Because that's a super important question. And if they don't address the thing that brought you to the doctor, then you're not gonna like that doctor very much, right? Uh, you're not gonna think that doctor is very good at medicine because they're not addressing the thing that actually brought you in there. That is what is called a symptom. 
Now, when a doctor listens to your symptoms and so tries to think, well, what do these symptoms add up to in my medical diagnostic an uh, manual? He's looking for something, or she is looking for something called signs. Now, signs are someone has a symptom of, say, they have a headache, and he's going to ask questions, do diagnosis, uh, do tests, uh, to try to come up with a diagnosis that points to a particular problem. Maybe it's a brain tumor, maybe it's migraines, maybe it's these number of things. But the subjective feeling of, I have a headache, is, is entirely in that patient's body and mind. Whereas the sign is supposedly the objective measure. It's what the doctor discovers in their investigation. And then this leads to a diagnosis. This leads to something which, which stands up to the collective knowledge of doctors everywhere when they're looking at objective measures and say, oh, okay, this pattern of symptoms and signs leads inevitably or hopefully inevitably, to a diagnosis of a problem. So if I show up and I say, hey, look, doc, my finger is green. It's turned green. I, I, I was walking down the street and I tripped and, and, and I, I, I fell on the pavement and I didn't do anything to my finger and then it got green. These are my symptoms, right? And I, and I don't feel it too well. And the doctor's gonna look at that and say, well, that looks really bad. That looks like an infection in your finger and, uh, and I'm going to diagnose by looking at all of my medical experience and the, by talking to other doctors, I'm going to diagnose that as gangrene. And we know from looking at our medical manuals and our medical collective knowledge that treating gangrene is best done with probably some sort of surgical intervention. Maybe you're cutting off the finger. Maybe you're really lucky and you get some antibiotics. But you, there is a solution to this one particular problem. That these ideas, symptoms, signs, and diagnosis are fundamental to all medicine. Okay, now remember that symptoms is from the patient. Signs is what the doctor observes. And diagnosis is this objective measure elsewhere uh, in sort of a collective body of knowledge. Now, every single medical intervention that you do, it doesn't, again, it doesn't really even matter if it's with a Western doctor or a Chinese uh, medical practitioner or a Tibetan medical practitioner or, uh, or a Native American medicine ceremony. Oftentimes you have symptoms. I have some sort of malaise. And then there's the sign, oh, this is, um, it looks like your wind energies are out of order and we're going to diagnose you to fix this with a meditation practice. That is also the same actual intellectual process, even though the outcomes may be slightly different. The, you don't have to be in the Western tradition to think about signs, symptoms, and diagnosis. You can have different ways of thinking about problems. And this is going to bring me directly into the wellness industry and to talk about how the way that we go about treating our chronic conditions is remarkably similar no matter what system that we interact with. Okay. Maybe you know somebody who has a chronic condition, like say gut problems, okay? This is a notoriously difficult thing to understand. The gut is incredibly complex. But let's say you have like chronic diarrhea or every time you eat certain types of foods, you feel pretty horrible. Your mood changes, your stools are loose. You know, it's just a bad situation. I know so many people with 
gut problems, who then will, well, let's say they usually start by going to a doctor. Sometimes they start on the wellness side, but let's say they start by going to a doctor like, hey, look, doc, my gut is rough. It is just in trouble all the time. And the doctor looks at this and it's not as straightforward as diagnosing, diagnosing gangrene right? It's, it's sort of like a collection of weird and disconnected symptoms that could be, well, it could be cancer. It could be uh, your gut microbiota are all out of whack. It could be a bile problem. It could be lots of different problems. And you go to that doctor and the doctor will set, examine you for signs. And as the patient, you go there and you know, if you've talked to people with gut problems, it's very, very rare that the very first intervention sorts out the problem. I mean, sometimes it's an antibiotic thing. You've got some sort of gastritic problem that's like a, a one pill can sort out. But usually what happens is you go to a doctor with a gut problem and they puzzle around. Maybe they take a stool sample, they run some labs on it, they get some data that comes back and they say, huh, let's try this. Let's try cutting out all foods um, that, that you usually eat. And we'll just reintroduce one food at a time until we figure out what the problem is. Uh, and sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't work because sometimes it is a food that triggers this. Sometimes it's not a food that triggers this. And you'll go to this doctor and let's say it doesn't, that doc doesn't solve the problem, which is an incredibly common experience. Usually what we say in this instance is, well, the doctor just wasn't great. He just didn't understand or she didn't understand what was going on in my body. So I went out to go and get a second opinion from a specialist doctor or just a different doctor in my network. And you go to that doctor and you try their treatment and it sort of works, but it sort of doesn't. And how often do we know people or have, through, have ourselves gone through two, three, four, five doctors looking for the right doctor who has the right solution, who identified the right signs to fix our problem. And eventually, let's say it does sort out, right? Let's say some intervention, which is applied to our gut, fixes it and we suddenly feel better. Well, we say that that doctor was the good doctor, right? We say this doctor, looked at the symptoms, looked at the signs, and they figured out because they were so smart or they had special knowledge of your situation. And you credit that doctor with fixing your problem. And sometimes they did. Sometimes you did have the brilliant doctor who knew the specific solution, who could sort out your specific problem. But it could also be that your gut naturally healed itself. It just, you know, sometimes gut problems just go away. So it could be something else that you were doing in your life that, that, that just magically healed your gut and you weren't even aware of it. Or it could be that uh, simply the process of switching and trying new medical treatments, new interventions into your own body allowed a certain level of mindfulness in, and, and attention to your own care that that is what cured your illness. All right, there is this fascinating uh, biological mechanism that I've talked about in this podcast and all my books um, before, which is called the placebo effect. And you, you know about the placebo effect already. If you've gotten this far in this podcast, you already know what the placebo effect is. But have you ever heard of the adherence effect? 
which is like the placebo effect's cousin. In the placebo effect, we say that the doctor or the interventioner gives you a treatment that is inert, that doesn't work at all. But because they gave it to you in a way that made you think you were getting medical treatment, simply that relationship between you and the doctor resulted in healing, resulted in your symptoms going away. The placebo effect is so important that in just about every clinical trial, you have to control for it because uh, depending on what it is, right, most chronic conditions um, have a very high placebo effect effectiveness uh, versus the control study. And, you know, you can get your drug approved by only being one or two percent more effective than the placebo response. So if a pain medication is, you know, relieves the symptoms in 50 percent of its participants, well, the placebo effect might cure 45 percent of participants. We still consider that drug mechanically active, uh, biomechanically active, and we say, cool, this is a great drug. But the placebo effect in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, is, you know, the majority of the healing power of what goes on. Well, the adherence effect is just as fascinating. The adherence effect suggests that, that if you give a population of two groups of people, inert medicines. And that medicine is a sugar pill for their, again, like gut or pain um, uh, symptoms. That the people who adhere to the protocol by that doctor closest are the ones who get the highest benefit from the effect. And this seems like, you know, sort of obvious, right? Is that, look, um, you know, the, the person who is taking these sugar pills and those four times a day and then also changing their diet or whatever the medical intervention was, the people who actually stick to that are the ones who are committed, who are the ones who get better. Well, that's freaking fascinating right, is that the more you do, the more interventions you do, especially for chronic illness, the better your outcomes will be. And if we think about that medical doctor that you go visit, right, you had your gut problem, you went to one doctor and they were like, eh, I don't know, here's your pill and it didn't work. And then you went to another doctor, you went to another doctor, always trying new therapies. Well, you might have just been using the adherence effect to your advantage without even knowing it because you are being mindful of your own illness. You are paying attention to your symptoms and you're trying to navigate your body like a pilot by using these doctors as, um, you know, and the interventions they give you to help you get better. Now, there's this doctor called uh, Dr. Dale Bredesen who's super interesting. He's trying to come up with a cure for Alzheimer's disease. And what his... You know, and, and the book, The End of Alzheimer's, is a super fascinating read. If you know anyone who has Alzheimer's, this is a totally worth it to investigate. But let me give you the summary of what, what happens. He says there's something like 26 causes for Alzheimer's. It has to do with diet, toxic exposure, mold, um, you know, cognitive uh, attention. You know, lots of things go, go into what he says causes Alzheimer's. Whereas the mainstream medical idea is that there's um, something called amyloid, you know, this plaque that, that builds up in the brain, that is causing Alzheimer's. And I don't want to get too much into the, the biomechanics that he talks about. But what he says in his clinical trials is that he has actually a remarkable effectiveness treating cognitive decline in people with Alzheimer's. And if you actually look at his programs, what he does is he runs tons of tests and he gets lots of data on you. Uh, and he tries to come up with a program which is intensive. 
All right. It is, you're changing your diet. You're changing the environment you live in. You're, you know, it's when I, when I think about what you need to do to follow the Dale Bredesen protocol to treat advanced Alzheimer's, it is like taking over your life. Um, it, it, it really just does touch on everything you do. You're doing mental exercises every day. And he says that he gets, and he has clinical trials here, that he gets remarkable improvement as people. And, and the way he says, and he's a functional medicine doctor, um, what he says is that his interventions address these root causes, which he, for which he says there's something like 26 root causes, and these interventions work because he directly addresses those mechanical problems. Because he's a doctor, and this is how doctors like to think and present medical advice. But when I look at his protocols, I also think that perhaps simply because his protocols are so damned involved, like you have to be, dedicate your life to changing every single input uh, in your environment and your diet and you know, what your air you're breathing, like freaking everything, that the adherence effect, especially for something like cognitive decline, something so mentally based, could actually attribute could actually contribute a majority of the healing that he is seeing. Which is to say, it's great medicine, regardless of what is going on underneath the hood. And you know, there are some doctors who make very, you know, there was a great article in NGEM, um, New England Journal of Medicine, saying that Dale Bredesen was completely a fraud and didn't know what he was talking about and he didn't understand the root causes and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and the critiques are interesting and they're, they're very good from a medical perspective. But I think if his patients are seeing relief and if, it, and if his protocols simply from their intensiveness are helping, then go for it. What's the reason not to? And in fact, every time you go to a doctor and you have a chronic illness and you bump around from doctor to doctor, you are practicing mindful medicine and never think otherwise. And it's the same thing in the wellness industry, right? You know, we can look at the wellness industry and say it's all crap, right? That all, everything in the wellness, you, you go to Gwyneth Paltrow's goop and she's got like, you know, everyone makes fun of her vaginal egg. You know, she has this egg to tighten up the vagina and you carry it in your vagina and it makes you tight. I don't know, it, there's a whole thing there. There are, um, you know, maybe you're changing the uh, EMF in your, your router, right? Maybe you're, you know, you're, you're doing the Whole30 diet. You're, you're going keto. You're doing the Wim Hof method. You're, you're, you're practice Tai Chi for your problems. I don't care. You're doing stuff. And it could be simply because there is this mind-body connection that we know absolutely exists that just simply trying things helps you. Simply going out and doing anything for your health with your intention and your full body and mind toward is going to help almost every illness out there. It's not going to make you immortal, right? And you can't say it's going to necessarily cure a specific thing. I mean, the danger here is like you say this will help anything and then someone's going to point at you and say this cures cancer. And you're saying it cures cancer and it doesn't cure cancer. It just sort of makes you better. And you know, that those are totally valid critiques. And I would never say uh, ignore your doctor's advice. But you will naturally go through multiple doctors when you have a chronic condition. This is the nature of the patient's perspective in the medical system. And it is my belief that 
as you try new methods and you invest and you like take the advice seriously and you put some time into every one of those those things that you choose, simply the act of switching between health modalities is likely beneficial to your overall health for chronic illness. Again, you're not gonna go get acupuncture for a broken arm, right? You're gonna go to a bone setter. Uh, but chronic pain, depression, anxiety, autoimmune illnesses, uh, lupus, uh, you know, all of these things that, that don't have a single pill that you can take and identifies the root cause and sorts out the problem. Anything you do has the possibility of making you better the more that you invest in that. And it's so funny, I know so many people who are like, I will never do a well, like, I will never touch acupuncture. I will never take Chinese medicine because it's not science. But medicine, you may not know this, is not a science. Medicine, Western medicine, the guy with the lab coat who comes to you and does these diagnoses is not a science. It is an art. It is something where they are going through that process of symptoms, signs, diagnosis, trying to hopefully getting to an objective thing at the bottom. Like the best Western medicine does find this objective measure at the bottom of your signs and symptoms. But oftentimes there is nothing there. Oftentimes there's a hundred causes for whatever uh, diseases you. And they cannot, it is too complex to identify one specific thing. And instead, they're gonna try different things until you get better. You're gonna go to the doctor and they're gonna prescribe you something and you're gonna go home. And if you don't come back, well, they're gonna think that might've been a success story. And they'll use that information for other patients in the future. It'll be another little data point in their artistic uh, medical design. And, and that will be what happens. Uh, that is the practice of medicine. and. If we realize that as patients, even if we're totally scientifically minded and we'll only go to doctors uh, that have been trained in prestigious American medical schools, uh, if you switch doctors, you are practicing mindful medicine because you are trying to engage in that subjective reality of your disease and trying to fix it. Which is why I think the wellness industry is so fascinating. Because there are things that are great in it. You know, I, you know, you, if you're listening to me, you know that I do a lot of ice baths and a lot of breath work and the Wim Hof method. And there is some science underneath it, obviously. I write about it in my book, What Doesn't Kill Us, and my book, The Wedge. There is science underneath it. But the only thing anyone really cares about is if they feel better after they do it. In fact, if they don't feel better, I suggest that they just try something else. You know, oh, Wim Hof breathing ain't good for you. Well, why don't you try box breathing? Why don't you try holotropic breathing? Why don't you try, uh, you know, any number of other uh, ways to interact with your body because that act of trying is super, super beneficial. And you might find that for your particular physiology, your particular mindset, that something just speaks to you better. And so you should go try those other things. And this leads me to another side of the wellness industry that I actually don't like, that I really, really don't like, which is that when we try to medicalize the wellness industry, for me as a person, 
I care about our subjective feelings. I want my symptoms to go away and I do not care about my objective measures that exist underneath my lived experience. You know, I don't care if my numbers of ghrelin or adrenaline or testosterone or estrogen or whatever are out of whack with the, the general world because if I feel good, then I don't care about that stuff. It just doesn't affect my life. And I think that in the current wellness industry, we get into fads, we get into fixations that there's one underlying problem. And right now, when I look around, it's peptides and testosterone. But there's other people who will say, it's this other one thing. You need to have coconut uh, in your coffee or something like that. And we, we start to say that, that if we take your blood panel and we get 100 data points, when we measure every molecule and metabolite that you might have, we can somehow read that information like tea leaves and say, it's these things that you need to fix. But that's just completely subjective. That's, that's a, a wellness doctor, and this is very common in functional medicine. Um, that's just one of those doctors saying, oh, I know the solution to this, and it's, it's, a, it's an objective measure, when in reality, it's simply a conversation of signs, symptoms, and diagnosis that where we don't have an answer, but we're trying different things. Um, one thing that you'll see, again, in the, in the, you know, the bro science community is that they will say, I feel depressed, I'm a 40-year-old dude, you need testosterone. And they will prescribe you testosterone. And honestly, you'll feel better with testosterone because everyone feels better when they first take um, something like that, which is a powerful, objective measure drug. But it doesn't mean that everyone is broken for having low testosterone, right? Those numbers don't actually necessarily relate to anything. And I'll promise you that in like six years, we'll be talking about something entirely different. Four years ago, I was talking with uh, Dave Asprey, the guy who invented Bulletproof Coffee, he's a really smart guy. Um, and he asked me, what was the one intervention that you could do that is the most optimal intervention in your whole life? And I was like, yeah, cold water or something like that. But really, it was nothing. It was, it was there is no such thing as optimal. And then he turned to me and said, well, I think it's going to be peptides. And I was like, peptides? Okay, why peptides? And, and why peptides is probably because they're easily marketable. And you might feel some effect from a peptide, and that could be good. You might get an active placebo response from a peptide or a testosterone or something like that. And, and these will be super fascinating. And everyone's going to gravitate to peptides until peptides go out of fashion. And then we're going to be interested in something else entirely. Wellness and even mainstream medicine is built on fads and it's built on the expectation that this one thing will solve your problems. In my opinion, and this is why I will never be famous, in my opinion, it is always the journey from traveling from one thing to another. And so peptides might be useful and testosterone could be useful in certain instances, uh, but it's about how you personally interact with that intervention and the amount of faith, the amount of adherence that you apply to it. And that is what is the most interesting thing about medicine. And there will be more and more fads in front of us in the future that you will be sold. You know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, they said that fat was the worst thing in the world. Now, like there are people who eat only fat. <laughs> Right? And right now it's sugar. Sugar is the worst thing. Sugar gives you cancer. Sugar gives you diabetes. Sugar does all these terrible things. And honestly, I do think sugar is really, really horrible. 
But in a few years, we're going to be like, okay, well, there's also this other thing. I don't know what it's going to be. Maybe it's going to be chemicals in our environment, right? Maybe it's a particular, maybe it's PFAS. And the P and PFAS is really the thing that was really undermining us. And, th and then we're going to have PFAS detoxication units that you can put into your house at the charge of $20,000. And that's going to go on for a few years. And then it's going to be something else. And then it's going to be something else. And it's going to be something else. And to a degree, maybe that changing does help people. Maybe just like, oh, here's another explanation that then, then the adherence and placebo effect does provide benefits to people. On the other hand, realize that if you're investing yourself, you're already going to be getting benefits and it doesn't matter the mechanical processes that happen underneath. All right, so there's this other, you know, this, this sparks this other idea for me, is that, is that there were... Um, Benson over at Harvard did this study on irritable bowel syndrome, which, you know, people have irritable bowel syndrome. It's a complex, weird disease that responds very well to placebos. And he said, look, I'm going to give you a placebo to fix your IBS. And, you know, he ran the study. And, and instead of the, you hiding the placebo, he actually told the patients they were getting placebos. And the fascinating thing was, is the people who took the active, the placebos, still got better even though they weren't being fooled like you usually get placebos you know here's your sugar pill where well, i'm not telling you a sugar pill it could be the sugar pill or it could be the uh, you know the ibs active uh, medication it didn't matter you could tell someone they were taking a placebo and because they were taking it they were getting better i would suggest that whatever condition is ailing you right now do the smallest initial intervention that has the least likely downside to it and start there and work up to other interventions as you go. Never start with surgery if you don't have to start with surgery because surgery is often irreversible. But start with things, try things out, give them a chance because giving them a chance is part of this. It's not just switch, 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 switch every three days. Try something out and maybe that will help you. Try your placebos. Know it's a placebo. Take ice baths, even though you're not even sure that the, the, the biological mechanisms that we have described are the things that do it, but take them because you feel better. Do breath work because it makes you feel better. Do yoga because it makes you feel better. And put your intention into that thing and you're gonna get some benefits. Hard science tells you, you'll get benefits. And also realize that when you go to doctors, you travel between multiple medical practitioners you're actually also practicing wellness when you do that. I really, really appreciate you listening to this podcast. This is something that, I mean, honestly, you can hear that I am unscripted. Uh, I really appreciate you listening uh, to my rambling, and I'd love you to tell me what you, other topics that you think I should chat about on this channel. Uh, I have a couple videos, a couple um, podcasts that are, in my lineup and in my mind, and uh, and those will be coming out in future weeks, but eventually I'll run out of cool ideas and maybe you will have a cool idea that I can do a little deep dive into. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend. Uh, that is the most, that's the only way that these things spread. Um, if you think there's something interesting here, if you know somebody going through a chronic condition and they needed a new perspective on what they were doing, maybe share this episode with them. I'd really, really appreciate that. Uh, and, uh, you know, more videos coming up in the future weeks. And, uh, and thank you. Thank you for listening in.